the message title is No Small Thing, Acts 14. We'll start at verse 19, and we're just going to read a handful of verses to verse 22. If you remember, we're in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they passed through various cities and regions. They went through Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and they found themselves in the city of Lystra, where uh, there was a man who was lame from birth, who had faith to be made well, who encountered Paul, and through Paul's faith in that interaction there, uh, he leapt to his feet, and the entire city of Lystra was really in an uproar, in a good way, and they were completely astonished at uh, what had happened to this man who was uh, just immobile for all of his life, and uh, with that healing, there was also some jealousy. And we pick up the reading in verse 19. But some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and he entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Amen. This, sorry, I don't know why it was scripted. I must have pressed it by accident. This title, No Small Thing, is primarily in reference to the idea that belief in Jesus and following after God in our lives is not a small decision. It involves all of us, our whole being. It involves our present and our future. That when a person decides that I want to believe in Jesus, that I want to be saved, of course, from sin, but more than just a salvation in heaven, that there is a sense of a life of discipleship in following after Him, that that's what is encompassed in the decision of following after Jesus. And that's absolutely no small thing. This message, and all throughout the New Testament, and all Scripture for that matter, there seems to be an exacting of faith. What I mean by that is that when Jesus was interfacing with multitudes or individuals, that he conversed with them in a way that tended to peel back the outer layers of superficiality, and he tried to dive into the core of the matter, the core of the man, and tried to see if there was a true faith. That there was an exacting of that. There was a, a determination of, is this just a following after the crowd, or is there a true decision to follow after me in this individual? In the Gospels, we see that all throughout. You see that uh, here also in our passage. And this idea of following after Jesus, and I'll say it again, I've mentioned this in, in messages past, the idea of perseverance. And I've mentioned to you that perseverance is second to love only. And when you think about the greatest character qualities and traits of individuals that we can have in the life that we live, love is supreme. That how we, we treat others, how we love God and our neighbor, that this is above all things. This is the greatest law, Jesus would say. And when you take a step down from that and only to love, you find perseverance. The ability to persevere through life and to continue in faith and belief. 
One of the greatest litmus tests of faith and commitment is hardship and suffering. Think about it. If you have a, uh, a career or a company that you, you love and you thought you loved in the beginning and you're committed to it, you have a belief in the mission of your company, your, your workplace, your employment, right? And, of course, you will encounter difficulty in the midst of your work there. And if you can overcome difficulty, that becomes a testing ground to how much you actually believe in the mission of what you're doing. It happens in relationships. You are committed to an individual. And during the course of this relationship, there are a variety of hardships, difficulties, and letdowns that will surface. And the ability to test that commitment to this individual is really tested on that Petri dish. With that testing there. Difficulty, hardship. And we find that in faith also. The ability to go back to the same thing which was the source of my suffering. Let me give you a small example of this. There are two, not, I mean, of course, there's a lot of things that I kind of despise, but, but one of the, two of the things that I despise are ants and mosquitoes. Anybody with me? Yeah, you know, especially when it gets hot, you know, they, they crawl out from under the ground, and if you leave a crumb somewhere, they're swarming with ants. I have, my, my blood pressure goes through the roof when I see that. It really, really does, right? My wife can attest to this, right? You know, in the 12 years of our marriage, we have never really fought, right? We haven't really raised our voices to one another. The only time that I was close to really getting angry is when she left crumbs out on, and there was a bunch of ants and it happened. Like, I was like, oh, right? Ants really get underneath my skin and not only ants, mosquitoes as well. Now, they're the tiniest things and how is it that all of your energy and attention goes to that little bit thing in the room, right? And no matter what you're doing, you're just so consumed by this little tiny insect. But let me try to differentiate these two disgusts of my life, ants and mosquitoes. If you see an ant crawling on the counter and it's, a, it's, it's around a, a crumb of food, right? And if it doesn't know you're there, it'll continue to try to take little specks off of this. But if you come and just place a finger close to it and it knows that you're there, what does this ant do? It runs, right? And there's something about ants, right? Once they sense danger, they don't care. They leave the food behind and they just turn around and they start walking in whatever direction it is and they don't even look back. At least in my experience with ants, this is the case, right? But mosquitoes are quite different, right? Have you ever had that mosquito in the room that you try to catch? Like you're just trying to catch that thing, right? And, it, like, and you, you slap at it, and you feel like something's on my leg, you don't want to move, you're like, you try to get it, surprise attack, right? And then you miss it, and it goes away, right? But there is something that differentiates a mosquito, in my opinion, from an ant. A mosquito is very persistent. In your experience, is that the case? That mosquito comes back time and time again into the jaws of death, Right? Across the path of my slapping hand, that mosquito will come because his commitment to the food, or my blood, is much greater than the ant's commitment to that crumb of food. At least in my experience. And I hope this little tiny example would begin to help you see something about faith and our belief in something. That we might like something, we are committed to it in the moment, right? We need it, we like it, and we are there. 
And there comes a moment where a finger comes out of nowhere and it begins to press down and begins to show a sense of hardship over our lives. And suddenly our, our, our security is threatened. Suddenly our peace of mind is not there and we are frantic. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable and we want to escape out of this danger. right? And the ant just runs away forgetting about it. I, I could care less anymore. I just want to live. I'm not that committed to that piece of food. But the mosquito, there's something different about that. And I, I want to kind of relay that, parallel that to our lives and the commitment that we have to Christ and the other commitments that are present in your life. Uh, Paul here in our passage, I wish this upon no one. I mean, this is something that you, you don't even wish upon your enemies, what Paul experienced here in the verses that we read in 14, chapter 14. He's traveling on this missionary journey. He's going through. He went through Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and he's in Lystra, and this miracle happens, and suddenly everybody's throwing objects of worship at Paul and Barnabas. They're saying, you're Zeus and Hermes, right? You're gods. The gods have come down to us, and are like men, they're saying. They're extolling them, lifting them high, praising their name. And... Suddenly, from the cities that they had visited previously, the jealous ones, they were really committed to that jealousy and hatred, and they followed them. And they begin to stir up the crowds, and he's stoned. Now, he's stoned where everybody thinks he's dead. I mean, I mean some people think, it's not for sure, this is not like a definitive statement. Some people think he actually died and was resurrected. But nonetheless, they, they're, they're hurling stones to kill the man, smashing his face in. Supposing him to be dead. He's not even twitching anymore. They don't even sense breath coming out of his nostrils. They don't sense any beating of his heart. And they drag him out of the city. Supposing that, you know, let's just leave him to die here, to be picked at by the wild beasts. And while he's out there, all of the disciples and apostles, they're surrounding him. They're like, oh my goodness, you can imagine the mourning, the tears, the heartache, the fear. And in this assembled gathering of, of apostles, this man Saul, he rises to his feet. And what he does next is pretty phenomenal. So as we walk through this passage, I'm going to talk about two main points. The first is this. Adversaries shouldn't dictate our lives. I mentioned to you that some people had come from the previous cities that Paul and Barnabas were at because their jealousy and dislike, distaste, hatred even, for these leaders of the Christian faith. And they have to be very committed to their dislike and hatred. Because if, let me show you a map. This is the missionary journey. The blue is as they went out, and the red is as they come back to Antioch. And you'll find that there's two cities of Antioch here, right? One over here in this Syria uh, kind of province over here, right on the, on the coast there of the Mediterranean. And as they go up into kind of Asia Minor, into the Galatia province, you see another Antioch. And this is of the province of Pisidia, and they call it Pisidian Antioch. And so in our passage, the people that really hated Paul and Barnabas, they were coming from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. And so as you follow that, that blue line, they go to Antioch, then they go down to Iconium, and then they go down to Lystra. And if you kind of spread this out, this journey, 
These people that hated Paul and Barnabas traveled approximately 100 miles to the city of Lystra. That's not a short distance. To, to show you the distance, it's from our church here to Tijuana. That's 100 miles. Okay? And so in Bible times, one day's journey was 20 miles. Okay? 20 miles. One day's journey. And so this distance is a five-day journey. And so how much, I mean, you have to be really committed to your hatred to walk 100 miles to, to try to inflict some harm on an individual, right? And that's how much his adversaries were committed to ruining his life. They were dedicated to it. In a sense, it was their life's mission to really make Paul suffer. And... These adversaries, there are times in our lives and sometimes there will come moments and, and situations where there will be adversaries, adverse things that are really committed to our destruction. And those moments will come. The Bible never promises in the Christian life and a life of faith that follows after Him a completely stress-free, in a sense, life. That there are trials that, that God ordains in the life of believers. And these trials are not the sign of God's absence. These trials are actually a sign of God's presence. Because a lot of the time when we go through suffering, we complain that God is far away. God, where are you? Why are you allowing me to go through this hardship? And we wrongly assess suffering as God being far and distant. Actually, in suffering, it's a sign of God involved in our lives, refining and making us purer and stronger. Paul, in his own words, in 2 Corinthians, this is what he says of the hardships that he faced in his ministry in life. I mean, again, this is something like, you want no one that you love to go through this. You want no one, right? And as Paul is recounting his ministry in his life after following Jesus, right? And, you know, when you try to lead somebody to Jesus, you don't want to say this, you know, after you believe in Jesus, this is what you're going to expect in your life, right? This is not something that you, you say, right? You're not being a good, like, that's not a good pitch, right? In a sense. But Paul, after believing in Jesus, this is what he went through. Multiple imprisonments, beaten without number. He can't even remember how many times he was beaten. That's a lot of times, right? Often in danger of death. In that culture, when a person was whipped 40 times, that was considered the point that you could kill the individual. And so to be lashed 90, 39 times was to be lashed to within an inch of your death. That was the purpose, to inflict as much harm without killing you. Right? And so he was saying, five times I was lashed 39 times. Beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day in the deep water. In danger everywhere, whether he was on the rivers, amongst robbers, with his own countrymen, with foreigners, in the city or wilderness, at sea. It did not matter. He was constantly in danger, he felt. And he lost his sleep. There were thoughts maybe swirling around or dangers always present where he couldn't sleep. 
hunger and thirst, cold and exposed. And if that wasn't enough, there was the mental pressure, the weight that he had a concern for all of the churches that he visited and planted. That he wished them well, prayed for them, wanted them to thrive and succeed, wanted their faith to grow. And there was this pressure and concern for all the churches. And this is what Paul is saying that he experienced from his own pen. He was saying this. And the Bible seems to assume that hardship will be there. Right? Yes, Jesus promises a, a peace that is really out of this world. But a peace is not the absence of hardship or suffering. Peace is actually the presence of your spirit, the strength that you have in the midst of it. And Paul, through all of these things, and the stoning that he mentioned here in that particular passage in 2 Corinthians, that here we read of in our passage in Acts 14. Stoned to the point where people mistook, mistook him from being dead. Suffering. Does it comfort you for me to say that God wills suffering? Let me read a passage for you. 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, would you say that of somebody? Would you parallel, would you connect those two thoughts, suffering and blessing? Would you go to somebody who's in the midst of the hardest hour of his life and if there is faith in that individual, can you say to that person, you're blessed? That's, that's, it takes a lot of guts to say that. That's not easy. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. I mean, all of Paul's ministry, people were trying to intimidate him. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. That, at times, I think is an uncomfortable idea. That God wills suffering in our lives. Like, not only did He allow it, He ordained it. He commissioned it. He willed it. That must speak something of that suffering. That God has a bigger purpose a larger plan for that suffering, that He issues it not to inflict harm as an end, but for that to be a crucible, for it to be a refining process, for His child, for His person of faith to come out even stronger and better outside the other end of that suffering. And so He ordains it, He can will it because He can see the good that it can accomplish. And this leads me to the second point. And it's this, tribulation for God bears fruit we cannot immediately see. Right? 
that the suffering for God that we endure in life, it bears fruit. But often this fruit is something that is not immediately visible. The gratification is not right away. And I, this is why it's hard, right? If you suffered and you experienced the good fruit of that suffering immediately, you're like, okay, great, bring it on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a good moment right after this, right? Right after this. If you were guaranteed an A after studying whatever many hours, right? I'm guaranteed it. The gratification is there, right? That if you will suffer and the, and the gratification is immediate, the ability to go through it increases all the more. But if it is delayed or if you cannot even see it, how hard is it to go through it? And we see this often in Scripture. Let me just, pert uh, it, pertaining to the, to the situation that we're reading about in our passage in Acts 14. Paul, in that city of Lystra, stoned, right? Dragged out as good as dead. And he goes to the next city of Derbe, right? And while he's there in Derbe, he's preaching, doing the very same thing that got him stoned. I mean... If you're a smart man, you know, if uh, it's probably not the wisest thing to do to continue in the very thing that got you in that predicament in the first place. But Paul's belief in that, his commitment to the ministry of the gospel and the salvation of the people that he would visit, that was so strong that he was able to overcome all of the hardships and pressures that were pressing in. And so he goes to Derbe and begins to preach the gospel. And it says, many disciples were made there. And after preaching the gospel in Derbe, where does he go? He goes back to the very same city he was stoned. He goes back to Derbe. I mean, he goes back to Lystra. And while he's in Lystra, he begins to, to share a message with them. He's encouraging them to stay strong in the faith. Keep on going. Persevere. And there's something that I believe is happening. And if you read further on in the book of Acts, just two chapters ahead, chapter 16, in the same region, in the second missionary journey of Paul. And so he went back, and after a period of time, he went back into these similar regions. And he got to that same region of Iconium and Lystra. And we read of this individual. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So we have this bicultural young man. And it begins to continue to go in chapter 16, talked about how he was well spoken of in these regions. And... Uh, the curiosity, the, the, I begin to see lines connected here, dots. I begin to see Paul suffering in Lystra, being stoned, dragged out. Everybody thought he was dead. He is raised to his feet. He goes and he continues in the next city, but then he comes back to that place and he begins to share a message. And I have to believe that this impacted a young man who was just starting to believe in Jesus. I have to believe that the suffering that Paul endured had fruit in the life of Timothy. And Paul commissions Timothy to do a lot of good work in the ministry. 
And this fruit, this happened on a second missionary journey. This was far removed from the first one. But fruit like this can happen if we remain faithful in the midst of hardship, tribulation, and suffering. You know, verses 21 and 22 of, what we, of our passage He's, you know, back in, in that city. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's of course in Derbe, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And notice these three cities. These are the cities in which the people were really angry with him. Right? And so he's returning to these cities. And what does he say? Right? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul could preach this because he lived it. He could preach this because that was what he experienced. But, I mean, think about this statement. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I think this is a forgotten truth, especially in our day and age, isn't it? I mean, you don't really see this message in evangelistic kind of sermons, right? Well, when we think about people trying to commit to, to live a life for the kingdom of heaven, through many tribulations we must enter that kingdom. This was the message. And it's so forgotten, this message. Why? In our culture, in our day and age, God is affable. Church is fun. Christian life is prosperous. Now, please don't misunderstand. God is very approachable, right? You, you, you can approach God. That there is a, a, a friendliness to that. And worship gatherings, church functions, they should be enjoyable. The Christian life, God wants to bless. He wants you to prosper. But I think if we over-fixate on this message, it strains out God-ordained suffering. I want you to get that. These are a part of the Christian life, right? We want people to come to church to enjoy it, to be blessed, for their life to be better off because they believe in Jesus. But if our primary idea of God, faith, and the church is this, we begin to then alienate, strain out, and distance ourselves from God-ordained and willed tribulations. This is the unfortunate fruit of this popular message. Because there are aspects of our life in God that are unfathomable, at times distasteful but that persevering faith, the strength that he builds through that, something happens as we exit out of those things and persevering through them. Something happens that cannot be reproduced another way. And this is what God is after. This is what God is after. I don't know if you know a blacksmith. I mean, that's really kind of a, a forgotten art in our culture, right? No one makes, like, swords, right? He, oh, my good buddy, he makes a samurai sword every other weekend, right? He's got a little forging furnace and, you know. But that's exactly what it is. You take a slab of metal and you throw it in the fire and you let it sit and burn and it's red and orange and it's just heated up and glowing and you bring it out, you put it on the anvil and then you get the hammer, you start smashing it, smashing it, folding it over, putting it back in, heating it up, bring it back on the anvil, smashing it, smashing it, flattening it, folding it again. And the more times you fold this and forge it, stronger it is. But if you just take a, a piece of metal and cut it into the shape that you want, it is brittle, it will break. 
It has not been in the fire. It has not been folded and forged and heated and hammered. And this is the crucible of suffering. That distasteful thing in our lives. But if we will go through it knowing that God can ordain it, He's with us in the process, and we will stay faithful and on that righteous path, in the midst of that suffering, something begins to happen. Our lives are being heated. We're being placed on the anvil of salvation and discipleship. And that hammer's coming down, not to destroy us, but to shape us, to make us stronger. And this is what I wish for you and for me. For us to be stronger through it. Not to be the Christian that runs away from hardship. But to be the one that knows how to go through it. Because Christ is with us. I begin to close. Praise team, you can come back. Just one closing point. And I'll read a passage for you. If you have a Bible, you can flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My closing point is this. The Christian life is one that is marked by passion and perseverance. Um, Passion to be able to believe, to be able to know that my commitment is not this river that runs dry, but is something that is steady, an ever steady stream and a perseverance that is able to go past the naysayers and disruptors, the adversaries and enemies, and this faith that is strong because God is there, and there is a faith in that God that is there. And we will not run, but we will go through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I just want to finish with a passage by Paul to this church. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our, which is our, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, and inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, and I say, and prefer rather, to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. This what Paul is talking about, comparing the earthly tent to the building that God has for us. But the key here is to be people that live by faith and not merely by sight. Amen.